0: greetings and hello to everyone this is the business of betting podcast and i'm your host jake williams today is episode 46 and we have david byrne joining the show david is the gm of trading at tabcorp We discuss the psychology of betting and trading and get insights from a thought leader in the space. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code B-O-B-POD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with David Byrne. Today, I'm joined by David Byrne. David, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. So, David, most of the listeners who have been listening from the beginning or have gone back and had a look at some of the episodes will notice your surname. And then Sean Byrne, luckily enough, was uh, the very first guest. And Dominic Byrne was also a a guest early on. And I have it on very good authority that you're the smartest of all the Byrnes. Is that correct?
1: (laughs) I don't know how much people paid you for, for that sentiment, but I'll take it. That's very nice of them.
0: Those who grew up in Australia will know what the the VCE or HSC or what the scoring system or how that works. There's rumours flying around that your score was relatively high in comparison to the to the mean. Is that is that fair to say?
1: <laughs> I feel like I've been stitched up by someone here, <laughs> but uh, look, yes, yes, it was. I mean, the you know my sort of time in high school and the mark I got sort of enabled me to pick sort of any sort of degree that I wanted. Um, But in fairness, some of what I've sort of used out of that degree probably doesn't translate directly to betting, although I studied law, um, and some of the analytical skills there probably help shape how to solve problems, which is kind of what we do on a daily basis.
0: So how does someone who can pick probably law, medicine, architecture, anything they want, end up getting involved in the the betting game? Did you... Start out very early on. Take us through sort of your early days in the in the betting world.
1: Yeah, so uh, like you alluded to, so bookmaking's been in my family for a, a couple of generations. I grew up obviously. My father is Dominic, and he was a bookmaker, punter, consultant, all of the above. So when I was growing up, um, he you know he sort of uh, made me familiar with concepts like uh, ratings. Uh, neural networks, form factors, speed maps. And I heard all this in the periphery, I guess, but, you know, probably starting to come together a little bit over the last couple of years, um, where a lot of that's sort of been put into practice. So I grew up to where uh, people who dad knew or had worked with um, included people like Michael Fraser, uh, John Size, for instance, Tony Ward, uh, really smart people who helped uh, help shape um, some of my learning at an early sort of, early age. Um, things like uh, when I was growing up, uh, so it was probably inevitable that I landed in this industry. Um, I used to do uh, betting on FIFA when I was playing it. I used to sort of map down exactly what I thought the odds and probability um, of me winning a game was, which is probably a little bit unusual for my parents to have seen, but. I think that was sort of the writing on the wall for me.
0: So, so you were, what, you were playing online or you were playing against the computer and you were doing sort of predictive models in your head about what the chances of winning were?
1: Yeah, look, it was probably pretty rudimentary. I actually enjoyed that side of playing computer games, for instance, um, and that was probably just against the, you know, the computer itself, not online. Um, and I actually used to just sort of write down you know, you know, without any sort of probabilities uh, necessarily in mind, just around, well, if I think I'm a 70% chance as Brazil here to beat Spain in the World Cup final, you know, I'd sort of translate that into a um, sort of betting odds and I'd probably have a little ledger on the side of me actually trying to achieve a positive result to actually have a betting balance and bet into it.
0: Very interesting. So I guess it was ingrained from an early age and I guess now with eSports blowing up, you're probably... Very interested in in how that's developing. So, take us through, I guess, through your law degree, and then after that, how did the transition come about in terms of problem solving? You know, the analytical skills from a an argument side, I guess, from the the legal side to transitioning then into to the betting world and bookmaking, and where you are today.
1: Sure. Uh, so, uh, probably like in in year twelve is probably something of note too. So. I actually used to start folding form guides into library books and pretend to be studying in the library on a Friday when I was actually studying the form. Um, that didn't sort of hamper my uh, my results at school, but it was one that did sort of land me in detention once or twice. Um, so from there, uh, sort of going into university, I probably carried that sort of passion for both sports and racing betting through. Uh, and. Probably about halfway through my degree, it was sort of, I was sort of coming to a realisation that law was very dry and I didn't really have a strict passion for it. Um, and I actually got into uh, playing online poker a fair bit in uh, sort of in that sort of era. Um, and that's sort of just a little bit after it sort of had boom, but it was still in sort of the golden years, I guess you could say. And I used to play a lot of sit and go tournaments and sort of eke out Sort of a small profit to sort of help pay for you know, the uni lifestyle which is you know, predominantly going out and spend, <laughs> spending money at the pub. Um, so that sort of helps sort of build a little bit of a bankroll at the time. Um, and after I finished my degree, I actually uh, looked at a couple of options um, into the sports betting industry uh, and one that sort of popped up was uh, Bill Hurley's sports book which was based out of Canterbury. Uh, and I actually worked there for, I believe, about six months. Uh, and at the conclusion, that six months, um, that place was actually bought by Tabcorp to form what was uh, Luxbet at the time. Uh, and that's where sort of my paths actually crossed with my cousin, Sean, who was the GM of bookmaking at Luxbet.
0: So where do you think your passion lied in your sort of late teens, early 20s? Did you want to be a full-time professional sports it Was sports betting booming back then as well? Did you want to be making markets on betting? Oh, sorry, on sports or racing? Did you want to be, you know, at the World Series of Poker? What Do you remember back then what your ambitions were?
1: Uh, look, I, I enjoyed uh, a lot of different sort of sides of, of what the game is. Um, I probably felt that I had sort of a passion for applying myself to actually Try to sort of make a living, I guess, out of out of betting itself. Although I knew that, um, you know, that's not necessarily just a stable career choice when you're in your early 20s. So actually, the opportunity to work in the bookmaking side sort of brought the passion together. Um, it wasn't necessarily that I didn't want to go over and play poker in the World Series, but um, as sort of a, an option for right then, that sort of ticked uh, a lot of boxes. So. It was sort of a a good sort of learning curve that first six months. I didn't know as much as I thought that I probably thought at the time um, and sort of getting to learn how it actually worked on the other side of the fence was uh, quite interesting. And it really kick-started a a passion for uh, data modeling and numerical ratings, which I sort of grew up with as I alluded to. Um, And from there, uh, you know, I was a sports trader at Luxbet for for a little while I learned a lot from sort of working alongside some smart people and working for uh, Sean who who uh, your listeners know from the first episode uh, and from then sort of I, I moved into a uh, managerial role where I headed up the sports division at Luxbet um, and was a little bit more responsible for trading methodology and style uh, as well as trying to sort of ingrain some technological advancements into uh, that business as well, which would sort of lead to uh, my sort of further journey into probably the data side of uh, what the business is. From the the LuxBet sort of side, once uh, we actually joined offices uh, with the tab uh, at a particular point, and it was sort of there that I moved into a role that, separated out um, on the trading floor and we separated uh, two teams one was called you know the trading teams which is in racing and sport and one was uh, what the team sort of helped sort of shape and form which was called uh, trading solutions which was probably tasked with a lot of automation uh, and algorithm build as well as some of the strategic direction of uh, sort of the end-to-end trading cycle
0: So when you say data modeling, are you talking about linear regression, Monte Carlo simulations and other modeling that takes place that is predictive for the sporting event, for the racing event, that type of thing?
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. And obviously that can take a couple of different forms. Uh, One of my first sort of forays into, into that was while I was building out, some of the predictive models, probably more in a personal uh, element and sort of applying that into the work environment that might be submitting uh, my sort of end sort of opinion, being in a line or a total for a NRL game for instance. Um, But the actual sort of shaping of uh, product was important at the time. And uh, so the market went through a, a bit of a boom to uh, have as many markets on particular events and a boom for product, which was enabled by uh, a lot of different data companies worldwide, which then sort of lent uh, sort of my skills towards building more your derivative models. So shaping, you know, stochastic processes around some sort of headline markets be it a supremacy or a line um, and uh, how, many, how many points was expected to be scored for a particular fixture.
0: So what was the trading methodology when you started and when you started talking about these different types of modeling that took place and, and trying to find new ways to create derivative products and, and I guess transitioning from the old school of, there might have been ratings and, and you mentioned before numerical ratings or speed ratings and, and amalgamating all that information that was available in sort of the old style and transitioning from there to the new style. What changes took place and was that a difficult process to get the adoption from people that have been doing the same thing for a long time successfully and trying to transition to a new way of doing things with, you know, this information age and having access to so many things and obviously the increased computing power that we have access to?
1: Yeah, look, uh, you know, the adoption um, and that sort of change, any, any change in any sort of industry, uh, it often takes a little while to sort of bring people along for the for the journey. Um, some of the stuff that I started sort of doing was uh, not necessarily brand new, but it was probably more the the actual execution of it and the and delivery method to try to um, build out some class of automation. So I know that probably years and years prior, you know, people were actually. Uh, learning how to price up, you know, a margin market for a, for a particular sports match off what the line was um, and building out Monte Carlo simulations, say, for future predictions. Um, but what sort of the key was, was to actually build that in a systematic sort of way that um, sort of enabled a bit more operational efficiency, which often gets, often was sort of a harder sell, but a lot of people actually it was actually important for a lot of people's jobs in terms of sort of finding sort of avenues to sort of make uh, their sort of uh, manual data entry um, a little bit more clean. Um, plus, the customer experience becomes a little bit more streamlined um, when you do that as well. But a lot of the change itself, uh, what we're doing sort of now and sort of even sort of beyond um, sort of what I'm talking to, a lot of the sort of the major uh, methodology behind what trading is actually hasn't changed much at all um, since even when my father was bookmaking. So, uh, for instance, you know, techniques such as a a fundamental model. So that would be coming up with your prediction for an actual event uh, and rating that against um, what other opinions are and, and putting your, neck on the line per se, um, with that opinion. But the fundamental model actually kickstarts what the market sort of cycle is. So especially if you're up first for a particular event, you have no other lead on what the price should be, um, especially sort of pre uh, Betfair or pre sort of an explosion of the number of sort of books that that have been out there. Um, And that sort of fundamental piece is still at the core of how a market actually comes to be. Uh, and that's sort of more in that sort of predictive analysis or form opinion base that sort of lends itself to coming up with an opening price. But then from the other sort of angle, which is probably the sort of the more important one and something that has been around forever, which is your technical modeling, which is more what's the market doing? What's how is the market moving? Uh, which leads in the market are more important than others? What are your customer base doing? Uh, And that's not only just in terms of a risk summary view, so what you're standing a particular runner in a horse race for, but it's also around the profile and key sort of marks of what your customers are doing and who they are to help actually shape the price. So those sort of two angles from the fundamental and technical sense, that that sort of adoption has been in the finance industry for a long time as well as the bookmaking industry. So, the more sort of tech advancements in the financial world, the bookmaking industry has lent itself to probably look towards it for sort of some sort of convergence of how that process actually runs. But as I said before, from a fundamental level, uh, the techniques that were adopted by bookies on track um, years and years ago are still at the core of everything that we do. It's just that the technology around it actually has changed and has helped sort of shape the operating model in a different way.
0: So it sounds like you really value curated market intelligence and and using that to shape your views and I guess ultimately where your risk is and how you have liability on a certain event or a market. Is that fair to say? Uh, Definitely.
1: I mean... I mean, the bookmaking sort of world, even for on-track bookmakers, they're still comparing their prices to what else is out there. And that might be from what corporates are offering, from uh, what the bookmakers on course are offering, uh, for exchanges, uh, for the totes. All of these are actually marks into what your price actually should be. So if a market collapses somewhere um, and you're not actually in tune with what's actually happening somewhere else. Uh, well, it's it's probably a, a game that is difficult to win on because there's something that's actually affecting what's happening somewhere else. And same thing sort of goes with you know cross correlated markets in the financial industry as well.
0: So, what about the actual inputs into certain models? Have they changed much over time? You know, in sports, for example, uh, let's take Aussie rules or any, any sport. Have they fundamentally changed or developed or have they just got more i guess savvy in terms of i mean you've seen here in the US with baseball the the sort of moneyball era has taken over and some of the value above replacement was a, a big stat 20 years ago let's say and now it's it's getting more and more and more advanced is that what's happened so the ideas have sort of been based around the same themes but as the data gets more rich and more in depth we can find more value in similar themes
1: yeah. Look, the, the data is the the key um, for how things have evolved and changed. I'd say principally still looking towards the same style of, of of variable that you're you're looking for. So fundamentally, you still need good data, and obviously online resources now and and big data companies that are generating it. So so for instance, your Uh, Bet radars, your uh, IMGs, uh, whoever has official sort of rights for uh, play-by-play data, uh, champion data in Australia for the AFL, for instance, is probably one of the uh, richest sort of data sets that that I've seen. Um, Those resources uh, sort of look for different sort of variables and factors in a game to actually present in their data streams. But uh, principally, you still need solid inference as well uh, and good creativity. So the data's not everything. I think there's an old adage that the size of your data uh, matters uh, less than what you can actually do with it, um, which I'm a sort of a big believer in as well. Uh, The tools and statistical tools that are out there from a programming sense, um, that's obviously helped shape how good models can be and, and have become. Uh, but the person actually trying to identify factors, um, that sort of imagination with that data is still a, an extremely valuable commodity. But from a variable sense, Jake, probably the you know, if you're looking at the AFL uh, as an example, um, what sort of you need to sort of identify first is uh, how sort of a game is won, um, and that might be that uh, a goal. Um, And scoring shots, for instance, in the AFL are what actually is the key contributor to winning a game, which sounds pretty elementary, but it's sort of the number one starting point. And from there, you start actually breaking it backwards to say, well, how are goals and behinds actually come come to be? So how are they actually scoring them? Uh, And if you were sort of rating sort of a player's contribution to um, an overall sort of team rating or team score in a particular game, if you're only looking at sort of converting back the sort of the goal scoring element, uh, be it, you know, in AFL, soccer, or a try, say, in rugby league, uh, you'd be overrating players that actually score those points. So uh, Taylor Walker might kick the most goals for the Adelaide Crows, for instance, but he may, may not be the best player in that team because it, you need to sort of actually then sort of work yourself backwards to say, well, how did that goal come to pass? And that might be where uh, even from how they get from the defensive line to the offensive line, um, you need to measure sort of what are the key contributors to that. So it might be contested possessions, for instance, and who who is actually able to get themselves out of uh, hairy situations with the ball. Uh, especially sort of under pressure um, or who is actually assisting those marks which lead to lead to goals uh, and most of this uh, most people who watch particular sports will actually generally understand i mean at a simple sort of one might be that we all know that Cameron Smith, for instance, is the best player on the Melbourne storm team, uh, and if you 're looking at it from a try sort of study uh, you know there're to uh, wingers Vunivalu and Adako would be sort of showing up first, and then you work yourself backwards. Um, so try assists, line breaks, meters gained—all of those factors sort of would lead to that try. Uh, and then there's negative contributions from opponents, so opponents that give away penalties uh, or miss tackles—that sort of lean to those that lead to those meters gained uh, need to be penalised from a player rating perspective. Um, and all of them sort of lead to well, who's actually instigated uh, how those points are scored. Uh, and sometimes it's, it, it can be somewhat intangible and there's people that can watch a game and actually pick up when Cameron Smith goes left out of a out of a ruck rather than right because he's identified an overlap or a player that sort of is one out in a situation. And with that... Um, to the eye, people can actually identify that, and the data usually confirms that uh, Cameron Smith's assist that leads to a line break in that scenario is the most valuable commodity for how uh, those points were scored. Uh, probably all of this sort of le- leads itself to uh, understanding that when you're doing uh, any particular rating system, uh, it all comes down to deductive reasoning. So. Um, I did a lot of interviews for uh, quant roles uh, in my sort of former title as head of trading solutions. Uh, and in that, one of the questions that I actually uh, enjoyed asking um, some candidates, and a lot of them were you know, smart uh, guys and girls out of, out of university, um, the question was uh, how many Cadbury's chocolates, for instance, are sold in Australia per year. Now, you have a prediction there without much data to work with, or the data is incomplete. But what sort of I was looking for there was you're looking at a qualitative analysis um, where you're sort of looking at sub questions and sort of breaking the problem into, you know, from a big one into small ones. So, for instance, for that sort of one, you might be looking at extrapolating information out where you look at population sizes or uh, classifying them down into demographics and sort of making estimations around consumer habits uh, per week. Uh, And you can look at seasonal impacts or the distribution um, of how Cadbury, uh, how many they send into supermarkets and how many of those that they sort of manufacture get sold on a particular day. And one of those sort of things that that kind of abstract thought, especially around sort of limited data sets is probably a really good starting point for anyone to sort of say, I've got a big problem um, and I need to sort of work backwards to sort of work out at its fundamental core, what are the elements that go into that problem uh, to solve it. And like I sort of mentioned before that from from a law degree perspective, lawyers do that all the time and they're consuming a lot of information in their roles And they're sort of working backwards from a sort of a key statement, be it a crime, and sort of understanding and decoupling all the parts and sort of finding a root sort of core and then working the problem back up again to come up with solutions. You see the numbers you want more control. On the Betfair Exchange, you can back, lay, trade, and set your own odds. So join the world's largest peer-to-peer betting platform. Get into the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly.
0: So what type of reading or what type of content do you look into for this type of thinking? And I know you've probably heard of Elon Musk's sort of first principle thinking and some of that type of stuff. How do you develop this sort of mindset and what type of tools can you use to develop it that's applicable for trading, sports betting, bookmaking, whatever it might be?
1: Um, Well, look, there's plenty of good reading materials out for a lot of of sports or racing modeling, Um, uh, but I I think for, and especially for your listeners as well, um, one of the the big things that when I was sort of developing some skill set that I found sort of important was to find sort of something that you're passionate about. Um, So uh, for instance, where uh, it might be looking at a problem from a qualitative sense rather than a quant sort of sense. Um, And that could be, and for me personally, uh, that was that sort of when I sort of uh, left high school that um, and started sort of betting, I actually had a, had an interest, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, in a lot of reality TV shows. From a market perspective, it was extremely niche. The limits were, were low, um, but like sort of many sort of people have come onto your show, your show and mentioned, um, sometimes those niche markets are the ones that don't get as much attention from a bookmaking landscape. So uh, the reason why I sort of bring this up is that from that perspective, say, if I was looking at coming up with an elimination market for Big Brother, for instance, what I used to do at the time was I would do a lot more research and reading into that specific show and sort of poll what people were doing. So uh, the key there for, say, an elimination market to Big Brother is um, because it's sort of voted by the public. Uh, Any sort of anything you could do to extract information online would actually lend itself to what the true probabilities actually were. So I used to go to some forums, for instance, that used to talk to um, Big Brother, Australian Idol, even entertainment awards like the Oscars, and actually put polls on those forums. Um, which a lot of already existed anyway. Um, And if they didn't, I used to put something up to actually say, well, these are the fundamental people that uh, are fans of a particular show uh, and they're the more likely to actually vote, um, which is sort of key that a lot of people can write down that this person should go or uh, this person should win the show but don't actually convert that sort of message into uh, a vote. So I found sort of the right sort of spots that that conversion rate would be pretty high. And if you're polling those people, that's sort of giving you a really true reflection of uh, what would actually happen. Uh, And I used to sort of bet on those uh, quite a bit or tried to at least quite a bit before particular accounts were shut down or, or minimized as everyone's experienced. But that kind of thing and that kind of way of thinking to me is is something that you can read a lot about, but I think for anyone sort of starting out to actually get yourself involved in an area of interest and actually just think about the way sort of uh, those outcomes are structured and just find a passage into learning more about the information that's out there and decoupling incomplete data Um, to sort of come up with a a predictive result. Um, That to me is a better starting methodology than getting a huge data set and sort of working off the back of that just because it creates a sense of, you know, really strong imaginative thinking um, that really helped, you know, probably helped shape uh, my career in the industry and helped shape sort of a, a fundamental understanding on particular habits of of people and how prices particularly were shaped and when, especially when they were niche, that there that there are inefficiencies in the market and you just need to know how to drill, drill down and know more about it than someone else, for instance.
0: So that's sort of the idea of the wisdom of the crowds in the beginning, getting the sort of consensus and then what, digging deeper into that and pinpointing on those that are able to shape the market and in inefficient markets, there should be a... I guess a smaller sample that have a proportional a proportional impact on that market. Is that what you're saying?
1: Absolutely. So I mean that, well, that's a that's a pretty good uh, pick up, Jake. That's um, that's exactly sort of how uh, a lot of things would be shaped now, especially when it comes into the tech the technical modelling piece and sort of finding signals in the market. So every day, from a trading perspective, uh, we have to find sort of clean information out of fuzzy information. So there's a lot of transactions happening. Um, There's a lot of people sort of, you know, help shaping the market. But uh, the wisdom of the crowds is a real phenomenon, um, as is a belief that the closing prices are the most efficient. Um, So, again, once you sort of work on uh, and understand what that closing price is and you've got that in historical data, if we have all of those signals coming into our pool, we can sort of work out, you know, from who's sort of shaping the market in particular ways to sort of get to that closing closing price. And what are the factors that they're using to help um, make their prediction, which a lot of the other information within our sort of trading cycle might not be. So not all information is actually created equal. So, uh, we need to sort of understand where particular customers uh, are coming from. Certain customers would have stronger weighting to how we actually utilize their information than others. Uh, and I don't think that's sort of giving too much weight because, again, people were doing that in the 80s on bookmaking stands. Probably one of the number one principles that even, you know, my dad sort of would have taught me at an early age that uh, being on the other side of the fence it's about how you utilize the information that you're presented with, which makes all the difference. Now, you could have information as well that you've created yourself, and that might be that you've come up with a prediction on what the market should be. But again, it, it becomes less relevant over time where your one opinion gets sort of smoothed out with how much is actually being sent into your information pool from when you open a market, from when you actually close it.
0: So this trading psychology stuff is fascinating. Do you mind if I take, I guess, us through a, a real-life example just to see what sort of mindset you have and, I guess, your strategy in thinking about it? Sure. So let's say it's the Super Bowl or the Cox Plate or a race at Royal Ascot or an opening day baseball game, whatever it is. I guess the starting point from a public perspective would be the opening odds. What do you... Thinking about in terms of putting out opening odds, are you monitoring if any other sort of bookmakers that have odds are already out? Are you relying on your statistical models and I guess internal insights in terms of opening odds? And I think everyone knows that at the opening odds point, more generally, the the limit's going to be lower and it's more of a filling out phase. But what are your aims and I guess strategy in terms of the very beginning of a, a, the life cycle of a market?
1: well it's 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 different per per event um, like I mentioned before that there was a huge boom for product and coverage um, a lot of that sort of took place more on the sports side of the industry rather than racing just because there was more and more to to sort of cover uh, and I think that you know it'd be disingenuous of me to say that well everyone's starting out with their own ratings for every single event so I mean there might be millions of different markets that were that are bet on annually, and it's almost impossible to actually have a have the resource to actually come up and contribute to a rating to actually kickstart an event. And I don't think there's too many out there that would sort of would attempt to do that either. so what what we would try to do is to sort of look for well, a, where do we have expertise and where do we need expertise? Be what are the flags that are in the market that uh, a particular event might actually have other sort of bookmakers or other shops sort of worldwide or on the exchange, for instance, that uh, actually come out with that sort of opening sort of prediction. So uh, Swedish Division 3 soccer game, for instance, it might be Swedish bookmakers that are the ones that are actually doing the research and work on that because they would feel like they need to. And from a product perspective, for them to actually go out first, that's sort of an important part of who they are as a brand. So not every bookmaker goes out first on every event. There's no one single sort of portal for that. So for for us, say, at at, at Tab, there will be particular ones that are far more of a focus to actually come up with a particular price first. Um, And others, you might actually help get shaped by what's already out there in the market. So... Uh, Some of the U.S. sports, for instance, there's pretty strong leads from a lot of the Vegas books who invest most of their time. um, You know, something like NHL, for instance, uh, is relatively unpopular in Australia, I mean, all things considered. So for us to actually sort of do huge deep dives into all of that data, well, we can actually get answers for that quite quickly because most of that work's already been done somewhere else. However, that doesn't mean that it doesn't actually take place and it's something that's fundamental to a lot of bookmakers that they know where those marks and leads are over time. The Sort of the better ones would actually measure how strong those leads are, which for the most part we do. But from a start, we were to go out first, if we've sort of come up with a set of probabilities or prices and we wanted to sort of put them out there in the market, there's probably two things we'd think of. So one is what is our actual price that we're predicting say for a rugby league game for instance we might rate a team to be six point favorites in a particular match we would have to look at what do we anticipate our customers to do now some of that can be gut feel perspective on we would expect customers to actually gravitate towards a particular team for any particular reason it could be media attention that week it could be Commentary, it could be what we've heard sort of within our office or outside of the office down at the pub, for instance, uh, that everyone's dismissing a particular side. So we would expect weight of money to come on a particular selection. So that anticipation is actually an important part of the bookmaking realm. And it's not just about what the true price actually should be. However, it depends on how you sort of weight that. So we can actually measure where Collingwood is playing on a Friday night in an AFL game, for instance, how customers have historically behaved on that, um, which is an important sort of thing to, to look at to understand, well, do we need to take this on or do we need to jump ahead of it, especially if the market will move in a particular way? And like I said, if the adage is that the closing price is generally the most efficient, to actually constantly have a lead in on how we think The market may actually react that's an important step in the process and just as important as coming up with a with a rating system uh on the other side of the fence and if a if a market is already out so say there's one bookmaker or two bookmakers already out with a particular price it is important for us to actually identify that it's there pretty easy to do i mean we can only look at sort of their websites to understand that something's already there and then what we sort of choose to do, I guess, is kind of considerate of, uh, say, an auction. So if we rate a particular house or value of the property to be a million dollars and the opening bid is actually 600,000, 600, well, we're not going to, as a secondary bid, bid 950,000 or a million dollars because that's how we actually value it would actually sort of massage what our bid is based on the fact that there is already a marker out there to actually say that what someone else thinks. And that wisdom of the crowd sort of approach um, has to be sort of as part of that. So as a simple sort of example, it might be that Ladbrokes is out first on a particular market and they're 20 to one about a runner in in a horse race. And if we actually rate that runner to be around $5, which is a significant difference, uh, we do have a choice to make to say, well, are we going to go out uh, at five dollars? Um, and we're certainly not going to go out at twenty dollars, twenty-one dollars, sorry. Uh, but we might actually sort of go somewhere that sort of lent itself based on a on a coefficient to both. Uh, so we might sort of rate our sort of our sort of marks a little bit more highly and say that we're going to go out seven or eight dollars, even though they're twenty to one. And again, it all comes back to uh, data for that as well, because we can actually measure uh, how strong our prediction is historically against someone else's prediction um, historically, and then actually weight the two together. And it's it's generally not that uh, in that scenario where there's such a big difference, it's generally not going to be that one sort of factor that's there is completely dismissed. Over time, once more and more sort of comes into that market and selling and sells into the market, most of the market's gonna converge anyway. So it's probably key to sort of have a good measurement of each particular mark in the market, whether it's customers, risk positions, uh, marketplace itself, and actually weight them accordingly to your own opinion.
0: So in that example, when there's a there's a marker out there at twenty to one, and, and you have estimated or your prediction uh, is five to one, throughout the whole process from opening odds, whether it's Ladbrokes or anyone else, and then when you open up all the way to the the close or post time or when the game starts, whatever sporting event it might be, do you have one eye on? Obviously, you think it's five to one. the the first marker is twenty to one. Is that one of the main things that you're focusing on all the way through betting? And I guess some markets you have a, a very strong opinion, I would imagine, or you have a lot of data backing up, knowing that okay, this is Collingwood, this is a Friday night game. You know, they have a strong supporter base. A lot of our clients who we know pretty well are, are likely to bet on Collingwood because it's a it's a prime time game. For example, in that whole process, is is that the main thing you're focusing on? What you Estimate the closing price should be what you think it might be based on what others are doing and then Monitoring the market intelligence in between
1: Uh, Yes, and and if I sort of understand sort of uh, your sort of question specifically, I mean, it's 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 an eye on everything Um, so we would sort of identify that yes, we need to be shaped by uh, what's out there in the market but Again, how strongly that shape depends on our historical interpretation of how strong that actually is on a particular event. Um, so customer, customers themselves and weight of money uh, has always traditionally been sort of the thing that shapes the market and converges it closer to a closing price over time. And those that sort of element into – Um, You know through the trading cycle from open to close those technical signals the ones that really take hold On particular events. It might be that again. We think the uh, the market could move too far in a particular way and We would sort of identify back to what our original starting prediction was Internally and actually put ourselves uh, out there on a particular spot um, late in betting uh, it, whether or not it happens uh, too often, um, it, it can happen. It's, it's one of those things that over time there's a level of objectivity that needs to sort of take shape where if we're only from, a, from an ego perspective saying that wow rating is far superior than everyone else's, um, you can't dismiss all the information that has been consumed in between, but there might be something to say where a market's gone from Three dollars about a runner into a dollar eighty, where our original rating was two fifty. Where late in betting going a dollar ninety about that runner, especially if there's other markers as well to say that this horse was probably is probably overbet. Um, then yes, we will consider that and actually shape it into our pricing structure late. But the number one sort of thing to to sort of learn and understand, especially over. A uh, number of years of doing this is there needs to be a, a, a level of humility in whatever you do to actually say that your one opinion uh, is never as good as the opinion of, of many and never as good as the opinion of many sort of markers into into that information stream that has historically been identified as being sharp or intelligent. But that's not to say that there's always safety in numbers either. So there's particular events where your fundamental prediction about what the price structure should be will always hold more weight and be and ring true rather than how the market moves. Those sort of events are generally relatively niche. Um, and the sort of the top line events that are very popular for, for betting and for interest they're the ones where over time your your original rating structure is valued probably less over time, whereas for particular events that don't hold too much money, your uh, rating of that event, especially if you're proven to be good at it, uh, is probably stronger than what the market is generally, especially if the market isn't actually being fed that information as part of their actual betting betting streams.
0: So take us through your mindset in the last... Let's say, you know, five or 10 minutes before a horse race, 30 to 45 minutes before a sporting event. What are you trying to achieve in that part of the, I guess, betting cycle where it's probably where all the larger bets are coming through, where the limits are the highest they're going to be? You've probably got enough market intelligence now that, you know, that 20 to 1 chance that's supposed to be 5 to 1 is perhaps all the way down to 6 to 1, or it might have come all the way into 450. Who knows? But, what are, you, what are your aims in that sort of final period of betting? Are you trying to find a summation based on all the market intelligence plus your initial prediction, especially if it's a, a sport or a race or a market that you're really comfortable in? Are you trying to end up on the right side of, I guess, where your initial prediction was? Are you happy to follow the market? I guess on the Monday morning when you get the, the trading sheet, if it's a five to one prediction and you're laying it at eight to one, seven to one, six to one, five fifty, five to one, and it goes off at five to one, are you happy in that situation?
1: Well, again, it, it depends on it depends on the scenario. So it, it's difficult to sort of have a one size fits all approach to it. But say in the last half an hour uh, leading up to a horse race or leading to a sporting event, uh, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head for most of, for most of it. Um, there's a lot of information already. Uh, invested into into that market to suggest that the pricing is somewhat accurate um, by that time now it's not always the case um, as most people would know and uh, the market still moves around a bit sometimes yo yoes a little bit to sort of try and sort of get a feel for where a particular runner should be by sticking your head above water on a particular runner and sort of seeing whether Customers uh, sort of snap it up quickly, or sharp customers snap it up quickly to get sort of good mark. But most of what happened in the last sort of last sort of period of betting is is more just appropriate risk management more than anything. So each each uh, bookmaker would actually have you know some sort of set of of limit structures that they would need to adhere to. So it's more around sort of monitoring. Uh, risk positions that sort of is, is sort of key in that time you'd still sort of look for information streams that come through be it sharp money or or money invested on a particular runner that outweighs another runner quite significantly to for when the prices should actually move but from a trading perspective a lot of that then is just around actually making sure that that we're sort of laying each bet at, at the optimal to more price uh, and to the optimal sort of person uh, at every, every juncture in that sort of time. So that sort of uh, an understanding of that last 30 minutes too would be that our volume weighted mean for how we're laying sort of runners there sort of contributes and sort of aligns to what the closing price actually should be. So sort of getting out ahead of a risk position there is still a, is still a sort of value commodity that isn't always automated. And often the now sent experience of good risk managers sort of sitting with the support of technology, that's sort of the optimal sort of approach within sort of any sort of trading environment in that time to just to sort of monitor uh, and feel out sort of what the market's doing and sort of make appropriate judgment calls within that time. And, you know, you're not going to stand a runner in one race for a huge risk position where the next race you're standing for nothing. Now, that can still happen too, uh, depending on public interest and depending on the structure of a particular race or an event. Generally, you'd wanna sort of, uh, not necessarily book balance, um, but sort of set yourself sort sort of a guiding sort of risk position or a loss position, which is usually sort of represented just in policy behind the scenes. But the same sort of methodology can actually be applied to, punters and how they're sort of betting into the market themselves. If they don't actually have a feel for uh, like a stop loss position for them, then it's a very dangerous sort of position to be in, uh, especially if you want a consistent approach over a, a long period of time and you know you don't want to burn yourself out on one particular event. Um, so the same sort of applies to both sides of the, of the fence let's talk price unlike bookies and toads the betfair exchange is a low margin buy sell fixed odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter not the house ready for the game within the game join betfair.com.au gamble responsibly
0: so can you talk about how you go about eliminating cognitive bias or any other deficiencies of the human mind when we're talking about these things even if you know that 20 to 1 is the wrong price and you've seen your prediction is 5 to 1, it's really hard to get that 20 to 1 number out of your head, even if you know the total amount bet at 20 to 1 is very minute. What type of things can be put in place or are put in place these days? I know you mentioned before automation and you've got to balance the the data side, the technology side with the human element. Are there things you can share in terms of what can be done in this space in terms of the things that you do in 2018, in order to sort of combat some of those deficiencies? Or is it just, ultimately, it's a, it's a balance of all those things and it's, it's, it's an evaluation every time you're gonna do it?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, there's a few different sort of angles to that, I mean, uh, the number one thing uh, is that uh, humans, humans will often make uh, wrong decisions based on psychology. Or emotion Uh, now that's in any walk of life and it's not just our industry that that happens that's just sort of on a daily um, a daily scale that everyone would sort of be affected by something that would make their judgment on something else change a little bit based on what they've previously experienced so the number one thing is actually to have a, a really objective measure especially at the beginning to actually say how something should be graded Um, Now, that objective measure isn't just I objectively come up with $5 in that example. It might be that we can actually weight and score what your $5 means against that 21 historically and actually trust that the historical pattern of that will sort of be correct over time. So uh, from a betting perspective too, like uh, for my own sort of personal sort of experience, you know, I would sort of have a, you know, I sort of have built models for particular sports and from an NRL perspective, say, just because it's sort of in, in mind's eye because it's going on now, my model might actually generate that uh, Melbourne will sort of be a, a minus four chance against North Queensland, for instance, just as an example. Now, me, objectively, me sub- subjectively looking at that sometimes might not actually understand exactly what's gone into that. So I understand it because I've, I've built the elements of what the model construct should be. However, there's, there might be a factor somewhere within that space that doesn't always stand out when I'm looking at the price. So I might have, have experienced that, well, Melbourne were terrible last week and North Queensland were fantastic. And subjectively, I might say, well, that feels wrong to me in a particular, in a particular way. But my eyes and what I've seen last week from a game uh, won't always tell the picture as well as what the actual data and stats say now There's particular people that can do that better than anyone else and you know, I've worked with people as well where some of their quant techniques uh, Might not be as strong as mine, but their read of a particular scenario and, and the gameplay So there might be an expert in, in a particular sport. They can identify matchups and Particular sort of elements um, that go into why performance was good or bad um, Just to the eye now. That's a very rare commodity to have Um, So if anything I would still if I'm looking at that Melbourne storm example, I would trust Enough that the minus four is correct to a point So I might still say over the top subjectively that I need to adjust this because it doesn't feel right to where I expect it to be based on my own personal experience and my own understanding of how these teams operate. But even then, if I'm sort of trying to weight what my subjective opinion is versus the model's prediction, it might be almost like the Pareto principle where I give it 80-20. And the 80 for sure is going to the model because it's gonna stand the test of time and it doesn't have any cognitive bias in it at all. And over time, that actually is the strongest approach to take any time you're generating some class of rating. Because if you've built something up to actually generate that rating, you do need to trust it. It doesn't mean you can't dismiss it in a particular scenario. You'd be mad if you just trusted it without any oversight at all. However, that oversight is probably only 20% of what you actually should be weighting it to. So that's probably the sort of major sort of factor for me that that sort of objectivity is critical, both on a punning perspective, uh, as well as a bookmaking perspective.
0: So I have a general question for you. In terms of edge for a better bookmaker in general, is it the same now as it was in, let's say, 1980? And I know people talk about in you know, that era of the 80s, let's say, that on a, from a horse racing perspective, people were going to the trials and watching trials and no one was doing it and that was the edge or nowadays people have you know advanced statistical models that they're using and they get an edge in that sense do you think that the markets are largely more efficient now and even though we always think we're at the tip of the sword we may not be but in general that you know it's much harder these days to win as it was sort of 20 30 40 years ago
1: uh, well, I mean, 30 or 40 years ago, I, I wasn't alive. So it's difficult for <laughs> me to comment on that. I can only talk to, um, you know, my experience, especially in talking to even, even dad or Sean or, or people that sort of have sort of lived through different sort of eras of, of, of betting. I have noticed a shift um, even over the last 10 years where the edge is slowly sort of decreasing, but it depends on what you're focusing on too. So for punters themselves like if they they can still find strong edges in in markets and there's always going to be people that can do that and and are very shrewd at doing that but from a data age perspective some of those advantages and techniques used 15 years ago that might have been you know almost like a like a pioneering attitude at the time that will start sort of disseminating out in the public sphere and as you're sort of finding an edge as a punter into a particular market, while it, you know, it doesn't happen everywhere and for every sport, uh, technically you're actually giving the other side of the fence a good lead into what it is that you're doing. So if, you, if you're constantly finding horses, for instance, that are in a particular scenario on a particular track and, uh, you know, on pace in these scenarios, in these sort of shape of, of a race and that's all you're betting on or you're only betting on uh, teams that are playing another team that is off a very short break for instance while it's, while it's sort of consistently an edge for a period of time that edge eventually starts going because you're conditioning uh, you're conditioning the bookmakers who are losing uh, into finding a way to actually try to beat you. So the game itself is all a cat and mouse game. But over time, the the more that sort of you're sort of delivering and winning, the more it is that someone's actually going to try to find a way to actually offset that. And f- from just a general data perspective, I think it's critical to, to sort of know that what's out there in the public now in terms of information and content and sources to use is very strong. So most people actually have access to not only good data, but good good commentary uh, and good good minds that are sort of lending themselves to uh, educating punters to try to sort of be be smarter in their approach. And, and as you do that, the the more sort of public the public influence there is on a particular market, and if that public is a little bit more smarter in their approach, then the edge naturally naturally goes. And On both sides of the fence Um, then it becomes sort of a almost like a race for the prize for who actually can pick up that edge first in the marketplace uh, and that that edge that they take will then condition a bookmaker to move the price to possibly where it needs to be so you know that's a long sort of answer to sort of say uh, yes uh, the market is getting smarter over time but like I sort of mentioned before the the product boom and the number of markets available, the number of events available to bet on just means it's simply unfeasible for any bookmaker to have a really strong opinion on every single event everywhere around the world. So if anything, the smartest sort of play from an edge perspective is to actually find that content that is has less oversight from a bookmaker.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. I guess, are you, try, are you saying that perhaps in 1980, if you knew that you know speed horses from an outside barrier were able to cross and lead easily and then therefore have a a really good chance of winning and potentially be a better chance than the market suggested Uh, that edge might have lasted for six nine twelve eighteen months whereas now that life cycle of the edge that you've found is probably shorter and the bookmakers will find it and therefore the market will know about it because it'll be implemented into the price and essentially it'll be Giving your edge back to the marketplace.
1: Well, any any person in a who has a a data role um, in any sort of walk of life, they'll constantly tell you that if you build a if you build a model, and the model performs well, if you leave that model and just let it go for a number of years without any sort of relearning or any sort of change to conditions, uh, over time it's it's going to you know how do we know that it's going to perform in five years' time? in the same sort of way as it did at the beginning. So any time that you're backtesting a model, for instance, you're backtesting on the historical data that you have now, but the model probably always needs to be recalibrated to continually backtest because the markets that you're betting into are constantly gonna change and become more efficient. So again, any sort of data analyst would say that you have to constantly refine your approach and always sort of uh, change and adapt what the model's doing. Uh, Obviously, advancements uh, in machine learning and uh, sort of going into the AI sort of sphere, that adaptation actually takes place automatically. Whereas probably sort of where a lot of sort of models are sort of these days um, or have sort of gone in the past, you, you still need a human to actually go and sort of adjust that learning, you know, we call it uh, supervised learning, um, adjust those models to actually change their parameters to actually fit the new market trend.
0: Yeah, I, I guess that whole cycle of innovation, you hear people talk about innovators and then there's obviously early adopters, early majority or late majority or whatever it might be. That cycle is probably quicker now because of all the automation, the AI. I've heard BI, I've heard all this other stuff. So I guess it's a... It's a quicker cycle, so you have to be really a chameleon to change your edge when you know the right time to opt out of that edge is and find the new edge and continue to reinvent. Otherwise, you're probably going to be left behind, or at worst, you're going to be break even, and that's obviously not, not enough for a, uh, for a positive expectation value better who wants to win long term.
1: Exactly. I mean, the people that would do it the best are the ones that are reshaping their philosophy and approach. Um, and the ones that may get caught out is to say, well, I had an edge last year. So that, that, that approach is going to still work this year. Um, now, you, you're led to believe, uh, again, uh, almost from an emotional perspective that you performing one year will sort of lend itself to you performing in the next year. Uh, now, if you perform well in one year, then I, my sort of uh, guidance would be, well, don't change that approach into next year. But don't have the ego to say that it's going to continue forever and and your model is the best model that has ever been seen because you need the humility to understand that the market conditions are adapting. Uh, Other people are sort of still trying to beat you, whether it's other punters, for instance. They might still be trying to, say, beat you to that edge uh, earlier. Um, And as more sort of people sort of find their way into – into the market um, who are extremely intelligent, the harder it is for you to sort of maintain a winning approach if you don't also adapt and learn from particular mistakes or, or try to sort of make something that was considered to be good, to be uh, great.
0: So how do you think it will continue to evolve? Do you think that this acceleration of, you know, what we've talked about, automation, machine learning, AI, BI, all that sort of stuff will help those at the sophisticated end of the market and those that are out ahead of it will continue to sort of take strides to be in front of the marketplace? Or do you think that with sort of, you know, open source technology and how things may be leaning towards uh, everyone getting access to data, everyone being able to do statistical modeling will allow for, I guess, the general marketplace to catch up? The market's
1: always going to be become smarter. Uh, technology and technology that certainly enables that. Um, from a from modelling perspective, I think the approaches are always going to get better and better, which means that prices generally will become smarter and smarter. Especially if you're say betting P2P on an exchange, and uh, you know you're sort of just trying to sort of beat the other punter who's betting into the same same pool that sort of – your sort of approach and the smarter you get is going to help actually shape the intelligence that also other customers will see on that exchange and also what the other bookmakers actually see on that exchange as well. So it's kind of like a complete learning cycle that it's going – as everything becomes smarter and smarter, the whole sort of sphere and ecosystem of gaming will become become smarter. Um, But I think the technology side and the advancements there also enable – different sort of uh, different products and different ways gaming itself is sort of approached. Um, you know, for instance, it's a simple one to say that from a transaction perspective, um, you know, something like blockchain technology may, may sort of have an impact on how, what that might look like in five years time, albeit from a regular regulatory sense, it's, it's, it might sort of not sort of find its way into the gaming sort of uh, cycle just yet. But also any sort of advancements in technology means that if I'm a customer betting with uh, any sports book, I might have a heightened experience based on the fact that that sports book might actually have a little bit more understanding of who I am and what I need to actually get an enjoyment and excitement out of my activity. So that could be anywhere from uh, a little bit more of a customised or personalised experience um, it uh, could sort of mean that sort of any sort of new players in the, in the market over time, or you know, any new sort of platforms that get created, there might be, we might be seeing sort of uh, gaming products get serviced uh, alongside those existing platforms, be it, say, social, gaming, or even esports and the advancements there. So technology and, and the way the market approaches it, you know, from a punting or a bookmaking perspective, there's a there's a whole sort of ecosystem that actually thrives on that, be it sort of the the just the transactional level sort of um, uh, approach, be it you know punters or gamblers, uh, punters or uh, bookmakers, but also from the actual product range and how a customer gets service long term. There's probably plenty of sort of changes and adaptation that's going to take place there.
0: So last question for you, David, and I certainly do appreciate your time. Young people who are interested in punting or bookmaking or probabilities or statistics, what advice do you have for them? And and if they're interested in getting involved in bookmaking or betting, as many people are who listen to the show, what would you suggest in 2018 for them to be well positioned? And I, I I don't know if there's necessarily an easy answer to this, but what are some of the things they should be thinking about? uh, Some of the things they should be doing uh, to get themselves ready for potentially, Working with you, working with people like you in the future. Look, uh, the number
1: one thing is to actually uh, have a passion, and interest for it. Uh, that's obviously a, a number one, the number one sort of step. You know, like I sort of said to said earlier, to involve yourself in some class of thinking around a particular sport or race or anything that could sort of become part of the gambling life cycle having that interest and passion and sort of learning and thinking about it constantly is, is will only sort of put you on a an on endeavor to actually learn um, and and adapt your approach and sort of become sharper in how you think about things. For, I mean, uh, in terms of uh, sort of the role that I was doing before um, in the trading solution space, uh, obviously a key sort of attribute that I'd be looking for in, in, in a quant, for instance, is certainly embedded in tertiary degree that's sort of based around stem so any sort of maths or stats background engineering background those sort of people are the ones that are going to not only sort of help build models but also find sort of smart people in technology who can program very well to actually start Building some of that structure out so it's not just the math side the technology side is just as important but for say someone who's trying to get into trading itself it probably doesn't have as strict of a, of a guideline in terms of say that tertiary degree there's sort of a, a, a decent mix of people that I've experienced and know about across different organizations that some of them actually have a stem or stats background uh, and others are just people who are passionate about sport and numbers and sort of just get how it is that the game needs to operate. And for, for those people, it's probably, you know, it is a good sort of place to start where you're sort of thinking about concepts and uh, developing learning, even just if you're actually betting yourself. I mean, that was the approach that I probably took and, and learnt a lot from the mistakes and the highs and the lows and, and all of that that sort of come with when you're sort of betting Early and you don't know everything and it's not something that you can just pick up straight away and just say well This is the easiest sort of thing. I've ever seen and done um, And I don't know why everyone doesn't do it um, everyone's got a story where they've sort of overextended or learnt from mistakes or any sort of trading psychology so learn from those mistakes Know why you're trading if you start doing it. It's come up with a trade plan understand that so uh, that ego is something that can sort of kill how you sort of approach things I mean in life generally that uh, if you're not sort of adaptive to to change and a different sort of way of thinking and understanding why a particular spot might have lost you need to sort of be able to sort of be in tune with that from a psychological perspective and understanding and being in tune with that's critical as well as just reading and learning and sort of surrounding yourself with the right people who are having the right conversations. Everyone, no one learns in a bubble. Um, you need to sort of have a have a sort of context around you and different ways of thinking too um, to actually help shape and challenge um, what you're learning. So putting that all together, if you're sort of picking up from a fundamental sort of level, uh, picking up sort of the basics of what bookmaking, trading, pricing rating systems, all that sort of is, then that's probably the the sort of key element to sort of kick start uh, any sort of career um, within the industry.
0: Yeah, no great advice. I'm still trying to figure out how many Cadbury chocolates are sold in Australia per year. So I wasn't pricing FIFA games. I wasn't predicting big brother eliminations. I wish I had been. And that's very endearing when it comes to the betting world. There's a lot more different stories that go around. So I just want to say I truly appreciate your time. It's been absolutely great chatting with you and getting your insights on uh, the trading side, the psychology, some of the things that you think about. And it's not often that you can hear about how someone of your caliber goes about what they're doing. So thank you very much for your time. It's much appreciated.
1: No worries, Jake. And thanks for all the good work you're doing with your show. I've been a fan since episode one, um, probably on the back of the fact that it was uh, my cousin on that episode, um, but yeah, keep doing what you're doing. I think any the visibility of the industry generally is something that I'm passionate about, as is many that's involved um, in whatever sort of sphere. So um, I think everyone's in appreciation of, of the good work you're doing.
0: Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au please support this podcast by using promo code B-O-B-POD. Gamble responsibly.